What is the Incarnation? Let's find out today on Changed by Grace. Welcome to Changed by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Herford. We are looking today at John 1.14, where the Apostle John tells us that the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh. What does that mean? It means God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Let's learn more about that today as we study together from God's Word. Well, this morning, we're going to begin a brand new series, and I'm calling it The Christ of Christmas. In this series, we're going to address the doctrine of Christ, or to use a more theological term, Christology. In light of the Christmas season, I desire to take advantage of this time and to direct our thinking toward the person of Jesus Christ. And so our message this morning is going to be on the incarnation of Christ, and the next week we'll look at the offices of Christ, and then the week of Christmas we'll look at the deity of Christ, and following our time of Christmas we'll look at the return of Christ. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what are we referring to? Well, we're talking about him becoming flesh. The word incarnation is a term meaning to enter into or to become flesh. Theologically, it's the doctrine that in Jesus of Nazareth, God took on human flesh and became the divine God-man. Now, the term incarnation, you will not find it in the Bible, but it is based on clear references in the New Testament to Jesus as a person in the flesh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The Chalcedonian Creed at the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon in AD 451 adopted the position that the Lord Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. And the Creed said this, He is consubstantial with the Father as to his Godhead, and consubstantial also with us as to his manhood. Like unto us in all things, yet without sin. As to his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all worlds, but as to his manhood, in these days, born for us men and for our salvation. Of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Well, they go on to say that he is the same Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, known in two natures, without confusion, without conversion, without severance, and without division, the distinction of the natures being in no wise abolished by their union, but the peculiarity of each nature being maintained, and both concurring in one person and subsistence. We confess not a son divided and sundered into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten, and God, Logos, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And this confession was adopted in all of its essential features by the Reformers at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now, the verse that we're most familiar with that describes the incarnation is the verse that's found in John 1.14. And though we'll look at this for just a moment, but we'll spend more time looking at other passages that talk about the incarnation. So if you will, take just a moment and look at John 1.14 with me. Here the Apostle John, describing Jesus in his gospel, in the first part of the chapter, describes or brings our attention to the divine Son, the preexistent Christ. And then in verse 14, he reveals to us the human side. And it says there, and the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse right here is the most concise biblical statement of the incarnation. The four words with which it begins, the word became flesh, it expresses the reality that in the incarnation God took on humanity. The infinite became finite. Eternity entered into time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. And when we look at this teaching, we understand that the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is 100% God and he's 100% man and he remains forever unblemished deity, which he had from eternity past, but he also possesses true, sinless humanity in one person forever. And this morning I want us to look at two truths regarding the incarnation. First... Let's look at the description of the incarnation. In addition to that verse that you're looking at in front of you, John 1.14, there are equally other passages of Scripture that describe the incarnation. And one of them is found in Galatians 4. Let me have you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4.4, it speaks of Jesus being born of a woman. It says there, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here this verse, verse 4, emphasizes Jesus' full humanity, not merely his virgin birth, but it emphasizes the humanity of his life. Jesus had to be fully God for his sacrifice to be of the infinite worth that was needed to atone us. But he also had to be fully man so he could take upon himself the penalty of our sin as the substitute for man. Nothing in the history of the world has been as important as this event. The son who had shared God's glory from the beginning would now empty himself and he would become obedient to the father's sending. If you look there at verse 4, it says, born of a woman. The word of there in Greek is the word ek. And Linsky says this, that this phrase, it denotes more than the separation from the womb. It includes the entire human nature of the son as this was derived from the human mother. The word Genonomen, which is exactly the proper word to express this thought, even the tense he says here is very accurate. He says the son's going out from God on his mission is seen in him becoming man. He did not cease to be the son of God when he became man. He did not drop his deity, which is an impossible thought. He remained what he was and added what he had not had, namely a human nature, derived out of a woman, a human mother, and he became the God-man. See, this verse right here is pointing out essentially what John 1.14 is telling us about the word becoming flesh. And it's telling us how that this was possible for him to be born of a woman and taking on all of humanity. Over in Luke 1.31... We hear the angel say to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son 
and you shall call his name Jesus. And here when Gabriel tells Mary in the clearest and the simplest way about God's intent with reference to her, he uses a conjunction or interjection there, and it's the word behold. And it's certainly justified to use that term right there. And then he gives three brief clauses to present it all. He says, Mary shall conceive, she will give birth to a son, and the son's name shall be Jesus. And all of those are pointing out the human characteristics, the human side of this, of Jesus becoming 100% man. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3 when he's describing being set apart as an apostle and being set apart to the gospel of God. He tells us about this gospel of God which is concerning his son, God's son, who was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now we have there two terms, him talking about being born and then according to the flesh. And the word born here, genomai, it refers to Jesus being conceived, Jesus being delivered just like any child being delivered today. Though his conception was of a virgin womb, virgin source. And here when it talks about him being a descendant of David, it's here emphasizing that he is an actual historical figure. Many well-known ancient writers, including the Roman historian Tacitus and the familiar Jewish historian Josephus and Pliny the Younger, all of them verify Jesus' historicity, that Jesus has existed Number one, from eternity past. Number two, as 100% man. And so we see in the first term, the first term that describes the incarnation is that he was born of a woman. Notice the second term. The second term talks about him coming in the flesh. Over in 1 John chapter 4, you have a section here where the apostle John is writing to his audience and he's telling them that they need to test the spirits because... Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he says, here's how you need to do this. Or here's what you need to know. By this you know, verse 2, that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And the Gnostics did not believe. There were two sets of Gnostics. You had the the Corinthian Gnostics and you had the Docetic Gnostics. And in their teaching, they did not believe that Jesus actually possessed a body. They believed that the Christ was like some, some phantom spirit, some ghost that came upon him. And here John is saying, listen, here's how you're going to know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And he here uses a perfect tense of this verb to come. And it could be rendered this way, confesses Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. And here in the flesh, coming as a human being, in human form, having a body. That's essential. You know that Jehovah's Witnesses, you take them to John chapter 3, and they they do some of the similar things to you get into John chapter 3, and it talks about when he says to tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then later in the passage it says here he was talking about the temple of his body. Jehovah's Witnesses also have a little bit of trouble here with understanding the Christ among many doctrines that they do not understand. But a third term I would give, not only of him born of a woman and coming in the flesh, the third would be appearing in flesh. Go with me to 1 
Timothy chapter 3. Looked at this passage before. 1 Timothy chapter 3, of course, dealing with the qualifications of leaders in the church. But when you get toward the end of the chapter, he talks about our message. And he mentions that in verse 16. He says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And here in this passage, this is given... The passage, it talks about our message as a church. What do we proclaim as a church? Well, we proclaim that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. We proclaim that he was vindicated in the spirit. We proclaim that he was seen by angels and and proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world and then taken up into glory. And some believe that this was an actual hymn that was sung in the early church. The idea of being revealed, it does not mean to bring into existence or to create, but it means to make visible. He was made visible. This is referring to a pre-existence. Remember in John eight fifty eight, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And there that takes us all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 and the burning bush where God cried out or called out to Moses and saying, I am who I am. When he was telling him to go to the Egyptians or go to the Israelites and tell them that God would deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. Here it says that he was made manifest. He was made visible in the flesh. At the incarnation, although Jesus existed in the form of God, it tells us in Philippians 2.6 that he emptied himself And he took on the form of a bondservant, and he was made in the likeness of men. He appeared in flesh. Our Lord Jesus Christ made the invisible God visible to human eyes. Again, 100% God, 100% human. Now, when it says that he was revealed or made visible in the flesh, the word flesh does not refer here to sinful, fallen human nature as it does in Romans 7, but rather it refers to humanness. Jesus was made in the likeness of men. He was found in appearance as a man. And this doesn't mean that, again, that he was sinful, but that he was fully human. You know, we sang away in the manger, and of course there's a verse in there where it says he doesn't cry. He did cry. In fact, if we know anything of the scriptures, is that he wept, right? We see that more than we see any laughter. In fact, I can't think of anywhere where I see him laughing. Can you? But he wept. He cried. But when we talk about the incarnation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about him becoming man, becoming human, taking on every feature of a man with the exception of sin. He felt what you and I felt. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So when describing the incarnation and him becoming flesh, God becoming flesh, we see that he was born of a woman. He was coming in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. And over in Romans chapter 8, in verse 3, we see that he came in our likeness. Our likeness. That grandiose verse there in Romans chapter 8. It begins in verse 1 saying, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And here just to point out in this passage again, it says that he came, that is God sent him, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Take notice here, careful notice, that the Lord Jesus did not come in sinful flesh itself, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. You realize this, that he could not sin. Hopefully you realize that. Let's just point that out for just a moment. Go with me to 1 Peter Chapter 2, look at verse 21. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed, underline it, no sin. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He committed no sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he knew no sin. That passage right there talks about God treating him as if he did sin. Notice what it says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And of course, 1 John 3.5 tells us that there was no sin in him at all. 1 John 3.5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So it's very important for us to understand that. That his coming into the world in human form, he resembled sinful humanity. But he did not become sin itself. He came in the likeness of it. Because he could not sin. And as a sacrifice for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He died not only for the sins which we commit, but he also died for our sin nature. In other words, he died for what we are just as much as for what we have done. And in so doing, he condemned sin in the flesh, as he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He came in our likeness. And again, these are terms that speak of the incarnation. They speak of his humanity. They they give us insight into what was involved in him leaving that, that glory which he had with the Father before the world was. And becoming flesh. Now, we won't understand fully all of that. And by the way, his becoming man, the incarnation, was utter humiliation for him. For him to leave the prostantheon, the face-to-face relationship that he had with the Father. To leave that and to become flesh. To take on a human body and to come in the likeness of sinful flesh. All of those terms and all of those features was utter humiliation. And just to help you see that, look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Utter humiliation. Well, another passage that also talks about him taking on our likeness is Hebrews 2.14. And it says there, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And there it talks about he partook. He partook of the same, of flesh and blood. It means to take hold of something that's not related to one's own kind. He was not by nature flesh and blood, but he took upon himself that nature for the sake of providing redemption for mankind. See, I want you to see this morning these various terms so that you understand fully what is implied in describing the incarnation of Christ. We see that he was born of a woman. He came in flesh. He appeared in flesh. He came in our likeness. Well, let's even take it even more to be more specific. Hebrews 10.5 talks about a body that God prepared for him. It says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. For for those to say that Jesus Christ did not come here literally to earth is ignoring not just scripture, but all history. So much has been written about Jesus. That he was an actual earthly human person. And the scriptures define for us. His humanity as well as his deity. Hear this verse in Hebrews 10, 5. It's a quotation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And you see by that term body, he assumed in the incarnation. And Christ could say that he had come to achieve what the old covenant sacrifices never achieved. The perfecting of new covenant worshipers. That was the whole point of it all. Look down at verse 10 if you're in Hebrews 10. He says, by this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Literal body. And again, 1 John, or the Apostle John, he wrote about this, and each of the apostles certainly had something to say, and we have the gospel accounts that tell us about the life of Christ. But when it all came to John's time to pen this and to write it all out, this is what he had to say. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles viewed, because they experienced... Christ, they saw his humanity. In fact, that was one of the things that they were having trouble with in seeing his deity, wasn't it? Was it not? Because they saw that he was 100% man, just like they were. And for him to say the miraculous to them, their finite brains just could not handle that, could not understand that. Many times Jesus said to them, you have little faith. That's no different than us, folks. 
We'd be doing the same, wouldn't we? And that's why I've said before that the miracles that he did were primarily for his disciples to confirm his identity. Well, notice the last description that I have for you this morning. And uh, we see it in 1 Peter 3, in verse 18, referring to him dying in the flesh. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If you go to chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll find this. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Again, terminology that speaks of the incarnation. So the incarnation is pictured as God becoming flesh in Christ. And Jesus being born of a woman, coming in flesh, appearing in flesh, coming in our likeness, having a physical body, and dying in the flesh on the cross. All of those passages reveal to us the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what do they mean? If you notice, I didn't spend a lot of time on them, mainly just wanted to point them out to you. But let's go into the second area now, and let's talk about the explanation of the incarnation. How would we explain this? Well, in God becoming flesh in Christ, we learn that Jesus was subject to all the conditions of human existence. In other words, the scriptures reveal, first of all, as we've already noted, that Jesus was born. He experienced a birth just like anybody else experiences a birth. He was born of a woman. He went through the entire process just like any baby would be born. Again, the only difference is, is the conception was of the Holy Spirit. And he was born of a virgin. That would be the only exceptions right there. But other than that, he was born. Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloth. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. He was born the same way that all people are born. He was born of a woman. Secondly, let me have you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Not only was he born, but he, he experienced what all children experience. They start growing up, right? Luke chapter 2 gives us uh, some information about his growing up. And it stops at 12 years old, and then we don't see any more about him until he begins his ministry at the age of 30. So there's a gap there in his life that we don't have recorded in Scripture. But if you'll notice in Luke chapter 2, you know the story there when they went into Jerusalem and says there in verse 40, the child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. You've been listening today to a message called The Incarnation of Christ. It's taken from John chapter 1 and verse 14. This message is available on one full-length audio CD and it's made available today by calling 904-651-3351. If you prefer downloading the free MP3 from our website, you can do that by visiting www. Dot changedbygrace.org. Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford, and I want to thank you for listening today. Hope you'll join us again next time as we study together 